Hello, my name is Arcadis. I'm an interintellect editor and host of this podcast, at least for this very brief moment. Today, I'm with Jacob Huber. Jacob is the founder of The Revolutionary Character, a company devoted to helping individuals to leverage the knowledge they gain from various sources, such as podcasts and books, into true growth. Hi, Jacob. How are you doing? Hi, good. I'm doing great today. How about yourself? I'm great too. I'm especially very glad that you have joined me today for our little conversation about you, about your revolutionary character and the salon you are going to have quite soon. Okay. Awesome. So I'm quite let's... excited too to be here. And thanks. I'm glad that you're excited too. So let's maybe start with a little bit of background and could you tell us about your journey and what motivated you to start the revolutionary character? Sure, great. Yeah, I'll give you a few words on that. So I, um, I'm Swiss American. I uh, grew up in the U.S., but I spent 15 years abroad. And from an educational background, I've studied a lot of different things, just following my curiosity. Toxicology, chemistry, German, energy, environmental economics. I did an MBA. And I worked in, in energy for quite a while, the more sustainable, let's say, clean tech-focused side of things. Um, and then at some point, I, I got into tech. So I built a large part of a consulting company uh, related to helping startups find financing and develop their strategies. Um, I've had roles as advisors to startups, coaching startup founders as well as something that I do. I've also had operation roles, including being CEO of one CEO. deep tech startup. And I'm uh, running two small businesses units right now for a Swiss tech company. And I really, really love this world of tech. And the thing that attracted me to it was, um, let's say, people just solving problems and you know making the world a better place in a lot of different ways. Uh, but as my journey went forward, as I became a leader, I just also found that technology is an area that is ripe, ripe for self-deception. You know, we want to do hard new things um, and we have to believe we, we can do that, but yet we have to see reality clear enough to viable paths to those sorts of things. And I saw this occurring over and over and over in, in founders of companies. And also I saw this happening in the companies that I led and the teams that I led, how often just our inner worlds, our lack of, of self-understanding, our lack of concrete individual philosophies, how this held us back at the end of the day, just held us back from seeing reality for what it is and seeing ourselves for what we are, you know, in our glorious imperfection. And so I, I've always been interested in this sort of what I call non-BS areas of personal growth, you know, reading a lot of books, podcasts, these sorts of things. I brought a lot of that to the way that I build companies and manage teams, but I wanted to build something that was focused on the individual. And that's what I've done with Revolutionary Character uh, over its fourth iterate for four iterations and you know, I'm about to start the fifth. So it's really something that empowers individuals to look at themselves, explore themselves, find a deeper sense of meaning and contribute to the world as well. So that's kind of a, a brief summary of my, my journey so far. That's indeed quite a journey. And could you tell us a bit maybe about the name revolutionary character? What does that mean? And right. there are very right. various resources on personal growth. And so how does your organization differ from the other ones being on the offer. Right. So Revolutionary Character is actually the name of a essay by Eric Fromm. And it was one of the things that I read that inspired me to start <laughs> Revolutionary Character. I think it's an interesting concept. I'll kind of paraphrase it, right? So 
the idea is, right, there's kind of like three different conceptualizations that we can have of the world, two extremes, and then and one sort of center, more, more pragmatic path from my point of view. On one hand, we can, you know, uncritically accept all the aspects of, of society and culture just, and just go forward in that way, thinking everything is perfect, there's nothing wrong. On the other hand, um, we have somebody who maybe sees the imperfections in the institutions and society and culture that is around us and then just uncritically rejects everything because of its obvious imperfections, right? And then somewhere in the middle, there is this revolutionary character that says, yes, you know, I see these imperfections in culture and in institutions and indeed in myself, right? Um, but I can generate progress from this by, you know, solving these problems in myself, maybe finding meaning and in, in solving problems in society. Because at the end of the day, sure, you know, in any given institution is imperfect, right? We can see the problems. The problems are very legible. They're very obvious. Um, but what isn't so obvious is the problems that these institutions, whether it be government or companies or, or anything else, what isn't so obvious is that these institutions are solving certain problems, right? And because those problems no longer exist, we don't see that part of things. And so, I mean, for me, this is just a very pragmatic approach to reality and progress where we can turn this thing around and say, yes, there are many problems. Yes, as individuals and as society, we've come a long, long way, but we can also contribute to making things better, where that, whether that be big, you know, contributing to issues like, like climate change or smaller on a local level, you know, opening a bakery to provide nutritious food for people and create a, a deeper sense of community for people to that come and, and sort of buy the bread. Um, so that's that's one thing, and then on on sort of our, our differentiation, I mean, you know, there's a lot a lot out there about uh, personal growth. I think a lot of a lot of good stuff. But one of the things that that I'm most interested in is creating a path for people to explore themselves and to you know sort of find their own individual well grounded sense of meaning and a sense of purpose, a sense of mission, and a sense of values, rather than telling them what they should do, right? I think when it comes to these sorts of questions, there's always a what we should do, right? There's always a how we should do, and there's always a why we should do it. And I think a lot of us get stuck on that what and that how, but I think if we have that why clear, then then that's that that makes those other answers much, much more clear what we should do and how we should do it. Um, and so a lot of what we do is we just start with helping people understand from a first principles point of view, the basic principles of, of psychological and physiological wellness, create a path for them to explore that sense of mission and purpose, and then and then direct, figure out them what a ways that they can then specifically, you know, in their agenda and their uses of time, how they can then acknowledge those realities, acknowledge where they want to go, and then direct their energy towards that in time. And so it's really customized to, let's say, invite um, evoke and and awake our individuality rather than saying everybody should do x y or z to be quote unquote happy or successful given what you said about your background and what you said quite recently about romans other stuff there does seem to philosophy does seem to be a part of that multidisciplinary background you have and does inform your approach would you be able to say something more on how do philosophical perspectives on self-improvement and personal growth influence your approach at revolutionary character? Right. Right. I think I think philosophy is a big word. I think a lot of people get intimidated by the world word philosophy 
But I think it is so, so, so important. And it doesn't have to be, you know, an extraordinarily complicated concept. At the end of the day, I think it's so important to make our beliefs explicit. And at the end of the day, that is, is kind of what ex- philosophy is, is an explicit set of beliefs. Now, that doesn't mean that, that those explicit set of beliefs are, let's say, perfect, right? But if I know that I believe certain things, then ideally what I can do is if I can go out into the world I can act according to my philosophy, right? Act according to my mission, act according to my values, for instance. And, and a couple of different things can happen. When I act that way, I can find that it doesn't work or there's little imperfections, right? And so when I see those imperfections, that gives me a chance to grow and a chance to update my philosophy, right? To make it more uh, reality cognizant. The other thing is perhaps I, I make my beliefs explicit again, maybe in a set of values and a set of, of and a statement of mission and purpose. And I'm not able to act according to that. Then the question is, maybe do I do I really believe that? But at the end of the day, if you don't make it explicit, if you don't have a starting point, then you don't have something to test against. If you don't act according to it, then you don't know if it is quote unquote working to take you wherever you want to go. And so, for at the end of the day, for me, that's why it's so important uh, just to have a general sense of, of values, right, which kind of guides you on the how you do things, the why you do things, and then a sort of a sense of mission and purpose or a mission statement that also sort of allows you to direct and focus your energy. Again, it doesn't mean that these things don't change with time, but if we want to get more effective, if we want to generate more happiness, if we want to do more interesting things, I think we need to go from the part from a point of making those beliefs explicit and then iterating them on over time, acknowledging that any given moment, they're just theories that we improve with time and we allow them to improve ourselves, our health, our wellness, our impact on the world, you know, our ability to raise our families, whatever it is. And so in summary, it's just philosophies for me are just explicit beliefs that you can then go out and test in the world and, and see if they work for you. As you said, philosophy is a big word. And so some issues might not seem philosophical while many people will definitely argue that they are. And so one of such issues that I would like to ask you about is how do you see the relationship between happiness and success? Well, it's definitely right. something that's mentioned on your website, and I'm curious of your thoughts about this issue. Right. I think, yeah, I think that's that's a very interesting question. I think, I think, in happiness and a lot of the other things that we want in life are are higher order consequences of of different things. And I think that you know if you pursue happiness, then the idea might be that, okay, once I finally do x, y, or z, once I finally make a certain amount of money, you know, marry the right person, have a car, have a mortgage, once I cross certain lines, then all of a sudden, I will achieve that happiness, and then you know I'll be done. But I think at the end of the day, that's just not the way that it works. And if you approach life with that perspective, then you realize uh, that you, you're, you're constantly disappointed, right? You're constantly disappointed. You think, finally, once I do this thing, I'm going to be there. I'm going to be happy and happy. I'm going to be blissful. Uh, but at the end of the day, not only are we not always happy, we we sometimes have to, you know, we have to encounter the the inherent difficulties of life. We have to accept them and go through them to get things we want. If we want to. Uh, run a marathon, I think it's not, you know, a continuously pleasant experience to either prepare for it 
or 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 to run it right there are there are moments of pain in that but if we have if we find meaning in that then we're able to refrain those dif- re- reframe those inevitable difficulties and you know eventually i think generate a more a more sustainable sense of happiness not from reaching certain endpoints not from you know success making certain amount of money having a certain career title but rather from just you know enjoying the road enjoying the path towards things and enjoying the way that our lives unfold and enjoying our imperfections and how we're able to improve with time right because at the end of the day if you spend you know 50 years of your life thinking that you need just this one thing to 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 be happy and then after 50 years you get there it's that happiness is very very short-lived and then why we know you didn't you didn't enjoy that road maybe right so i think really immersing ourselves in our experience again knowing what we want figuring out what we want better with time and then doubling down on those things where we truly find meaning i think is really really important and distinguishing between our own true desires our own true let's say strengths and weaknesses and the stories that other people tell about us or or the goalposts that society and and cultures set for us and so for me i think if you know zooming back down to be a bit more explicit I think if we're able to really acknowledge the realities of our psychology and our physiology, take care of ourselves and orient ourselves in different in, in a specific way, that is something that will generate a byproduct of, of happiness and joy and connection and all of those things, rather than just you know pursuing these things and then expecting all of a sudden uh, a blissful life till the end of time. Those I think are very valid points, and I think many will. Det- argue them that all of those objections to that sh- to that view of okay i will achieve happiness sometime in the future and okay i will feel great for a moment and but then we ask so what this can lead some people to question whether this should be called happiness because you know there are various approaches to what happiness is some understand it's more in terms of simply feeling well in some quite short period of times, others would define it more like a way of being, a way of conducting yourself, being in a certain state across years, regardless of whether you experience, whether you do or not experience some pain along the road. Uh, It's just a side point. Okay, given that, let's move from philosophy to maybe some more concrete matters to some technology, so to speak. How do you think one should maintain a balance between striving for growth and ensuring personal happiness and emotional satisfaction, mm. regardless of how one defines this? Right. That's that's an interesting question. I think one last point to build on, on one of the things you said about the last question is, I think to a degree, happiness is also a choice. Um, and I think that's also important. You know, if we think that we're unhappy because we have difficulties, I think that's, that's, that's wrong, right? We we're going to have difficulties inevitably. And so making choices to be happy, to find the beauty in life, to find the beauty in small moments, to find the beauty in difficulties, I think is, is a conscious choice that we can make. Um, but then zooming into your question more on this, this balance between growth and personal happiness, I think. I think it really it really depends what is driving your growth. And I mean, for me, for a long time, what drove my growth 
um, wasn't necessarily a sense of, of happiness from that process, right? From letting life unfold, from addressing bottlenecks in my life and, and seeing progress like it is now. I see that progress and I'm happy because of the progress. I'm happy because of the road, because of the path. But like, to be frank and vulnerable in the past, what drove me to quote unquote improve was just a sense of deficit that I wasn't perfect, right? That I wasn't enough for myself or, or for different people, you know, in relationships. And uh, over time, uh, first of all, I realized that, but then I was able to, to channel that and sort of reframe these things to say, look, I am here. I am, I need to see clearly where I am right now in all of my imperfection to get where I want to go. Because if I don't, then I'm probably deceiving myself about the path. And again, personal happiness, I mean, that's, that's such a nebulous concept, right? But I, I find, I just find so much happiness in, in the path, you know, in expanding my understanding of myself and the world, um, whether that be scientifically, psychologically, or otherwise contributing, um, you know, sometimes falling short, making a lot of those failures and errors that might mean that what I believed wasn't true. And then that's a great thing, right? If I, if I fail, and I, I, I think failure is a bad thing, then I'm inevitably going to be unhappy. But if I look at failure as a way to recognize an area where I'm wrong, then that's amazing because like, great, I didn't know I was wrong there. Now I can figure this thing out, right? This is sometimes why in relationships or friendships, you know, we want to, I want feedback. I want direct and brutal feedback because other people sometimes can see the things that I can't see. And I consider that a gift. I consider that a gift because now I can see something now I can see there's a problem. Now I can do something about it. Now I can improve and now I can get, I can go further. But I think, I think that's the thing at the root of it, right? If we're driven towards growth and improvement from that more healthy psychological space and, and acknowledging and enjoying those steps on the road, including the stumbles, I think for me, that is what has just made me so much happier, reframing all of this, reframing the difficulties inherent in life. Um, you know, rather than than starting from a point of I'm going to try to improve myself because I'm imperfect and then never actually being able to be perfect and then never being happy because you are imperfect. But, you know, imperfection is beautiful. And what would we do if we were perfect, right? What would motivate us to, to, to go forward and to explore and to learn and to grow? You know, I don't know. I don't know. So I find I find beauty in imperfection and in failure. And for me, at least, reframing all of that and accepting all of that as, as part of the life's path is, is a way then to, to, to get towards something that, that might be able to be termed happiness. But I think that reframing is, is a huge key. And then the, 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 you know, the conscious and subconscious motivations driving you towards growth. I think those two things are, are a really big part of it. I understand. It's even telling that and various per conceptions of perfection, like we have in the world famous philosopher Plato, where we have perfection that doesn't involve any change because why should it, you know, always perfect, always at the perfect stage. And he goes on to develop an account of why this is so, uh, but moving forward to developing more, even more concrete advice, let's move to your salon on the. 30th of December. It's taking place at 8 a.m. Eastern time. And one of the central concepts that will be explored in that salon will be the concept of anti-resolutions. 
So maybe could could you explain to us the concept of anti-resolutions and how it differs from traditional New Year's resolutions? Right. Right. I think, you know, especially in a world or or where we maybe don't always have, let's say, a, a large degree of, of self-understanding or an explicit philosophy and where we're also, you know, looking, striving for happiness internally, externally, sorry, as an end point, I think it's very, very easy to continually add things to our lives in search of, of that elusive happiness, right? And what I think is really hard is to, to subtract things, right? But I think when it comes to growth and when you go down this path, at some point you realize, or at least I have realized, that it's really not a, so much about adding things. It's about subtracting things that are, that are incompatible from my own stated goals, uh, you know, sense of mission and values to, to create more energy to double down on the things that you truly believe in, right? As you are able, ideally over the course of life, to, to really make more and more concrete the things that you believe in, then it becomes obvious that you need to remove certain things that are incompatible. And that can be very big things or that can be small things. A while ago, I, you know, for, for, for a number of years, I was doing a combination of Ashtanga yoga and CrossFit. So a lot of, a lot of Olympic lifting, a lot of gymnastics, a lot of powerlifting. Uh, I was doing those things as my main sort of sports pursuits. And, 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 uh, the funny thing was every few weeks I'd hurt myself in little ways and then I wouldn't be able to to continually, you know, maintain either one of those practices. And at some point I realized, you know, to a large degree, these two pursuits are inherently incompatible. And the hard part was I enjoyed both of them. I enjoyed both of them very much. Um, but I had I realized I had to make a choice. I had to make a choice to to remove one of those things. And what I ended up doing was still going with the CrossFit, but I took away Ashtanga and then I added Yin Yoga instead of Ashtanga. And those things ended up being very, very complementary to the point that I almost never hurt myself and I can always be consistently in the gym. And it's so important to be consistently in the gym for me because that is a, you know, a main way that I deal with stress. I find it inherently enjoyable. I, I like to just to be strong, right? I find I like that. I like to, you know, to have to maintain a certain aesthetic and and just what I need to do that is to be in the gym gym consistently because of just that basic maintenance of my physiological needs and also my psychological ones. And so that might seem like a very, let's say, prosaic or normal example, but that was one specific thing in my life that once I realized that and made that hard choice doubling down and taking steps closer towards, you know, what I, tr what I really treasured, um, then I just had that much more energy, that much more wellness, uh, to deploy towards effective participation in, in life and the things that I personally enjoy in life. And an anti-resolution is just that trying to get clear on something that is, you know, that is in your life that is incompatible with what you currently conceptualize as your, your sense of direction, purpose, and values to unlock that extra energy. And sometimes um, we're tempted to unlock that energy and we're tempted to, do, to add something else in there. And I think, you know, even if you don't have it perfectly clear, that sense of mission and values, removing inherent incompatibilities can then also give you more space to contemplate, you know, what that sense of, of purpose or what those values might be. Um, so, so for wherever you're coming at this from, from my point of view, 
um, it is really important to note growth as being subtractive uh, rather than than additive and then just overwhelming ourselves to the point that we don't make real progress on anything in our lives. Back to a little back to philosophy, I think the approach of anti-resolutions resembles a bit of, as reminding me of philosophy of Karl Popper, especially his theory of knowledge, where development, positive cognitive development, learning happens by trial and error and growth develops, gets better by basically stumbling upon some problems and then changing something, trying to remove the blockade and keep moving forward and growing in that way. That's, that's I think, an interesting connection. While we discussed what to do in the present and in the near present as the new year approaches, uh, let's move maybe a bit to the future. And let me ask you, how do you envision the future of work impacting personal growth, productivity, and overall happiness? That's a wonderful question. And I'll address that too, but I want to go back to your, to your, your last comments. Indeed, Karl Popper is actually huge, uh, has a huge influence on my philosophy, right? So critical rationalism, open society, and a lot of other stuff. And that's, yeah, that has, that has a huge influence on me. And it really points to that sort of, you know, knowing what we don't know, and then um, just correcting errors when we, when we encounter them to learn things. But not digressing too much there, because I could talk about that for a very long time, perhaps at another moment. I think, yeah, this question about the future of work, you know, I think the, the topic that is on, you know, everybody's mind and that a lot of people are talking about when it comes to the future of work is, is AI. But AI is just yet another tool to can work or, ser or serve us in certain ways if we use it effectively. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, even even with, with other old technologies like the printing press, there was a lot of, um, like, ne let's say, negativities around what might happen to society or humans. And, of course, now we have this story of, well, a AI might take over. It's, it's going to come. It's going to take our jobs, right? I think I view it in a different way. I think... I think we have a huge opportunity as time goes on tools, whether they be AI or something else, we're automating more and more of honestly, the tasks that are more or that are more drudgerous that I would say, you know, are less, let's say human in the, in the, in their nature. And I think that this is, is rather than a threat. It's an opportunity for us to, to double down on our humanity and, and, and sort of start again acknowledging, you know, our lives and living and working not as machines with these sort of unconscious mental models that we we inherited from the industrial revolution, where we just need shifts of eight hours so that we can run the machines and and, and put out tons of textile textiles or whatever product. At the end of the day, we are not machines, and this gives us a great opportunity to acknowledge that and double down on things like creativity, right? in a world where there are, are obviously so, so many problems, if we can unlock more creativity, if we can use these tools to focus on some of those things like creativity that are, you know, inherent to humanity, well, then that just means we have that much more energy to solve problems in ourselves, in society, and just make the world and ourselves that much better. So I don't, I don't really see it as a threat in that sense. Now, it is also hard 
because probably our opportunities to do these things are not equally spread. So if we can use this technology to just more create more widely spread abundance and to direct more people to be able to to to, to live, you know, as humans rather than as machines, I think I think that's a better world. But you know, this means that we then all at scale have to turn towards our inner worlds and, and really, really understand ourselves. Because if we don't understand ourselves, then then that can create problems. And I mean, I'll make I'll make a maybe a somewhat stupid or simplistic example. You know, imagine a coal miner uh, who who was working for years and years as a coal miner. His dad was a coal miner. His, maybe his grandfather was a coal miner. So there was this sense of legacy in his work as a coal miner. And at some point, these jobs, these jobs, they start to go away. And in a world where, especially in the West, we find so much meaning in our work, when that goes away, then, then our sense of meaning can crumble. But we don't understand that, right? And not only do we get a sense of meaning from, from that job, but I mean, imagine, right? You're a coal miner. What, what happens to the coal? The, the coal goes into power, into electricity generation plants, right? And so you're literally powering the world. It's, it's a dangerous, it's a dirty job, right? But you're powering the world. You're contributing to something bigger than yourself. You're, you're making a good amount of money to, to, to take care of your family and to, um, you know, to be effectively participate in your community. And then if, if all that goes away and you don't actually understand yourself or understand your basic physiological and psychological needs, then the easiest thing to do is to attribute that to the outside world. And of course, that can create you know, issues like unrest and, 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 and revolution and these sorts of things. So I think this opportunity is still a bit of a threat if we don't figure out how to, to scale these sort of um, solutions to these inner world problems, right? A world where there's 100 times as many good coaches and good therapists, I think that is a better world too. Um, but just to wrap up kind of my long dialogue, I think there's hope there as well. Because for some specific parts of therapy, it seems like AI um, might be a nice way to scale some of this. Of course, some of the parts of therapy still depend on that personal relationship, but it seems there are some interesting applications coming out from that. And I think, you know, uh, in a world where we're all able to understand ourselves better and address those inner world problems, which is that much able, more able to contribute to those external world problems that we see all around us. Um, and so in that way, we grow ourselves and we grow our society and you know, make a better world. Thank you very much, Jacob, for your insights on this issue and on everyone we have discussed throughout, throughout our meeting. And let's wrap up. And I definitely invite everyone to join Jacob's Salon on the 30th of December on anti-resolutions. Thank you, Jacob, for your insight on this. And all the other issues that we have discussed throughout this meeting. And let me invite everyone to join Jacob on December the 30th for his salon on anti-resolutions. I built anti-resolutions in the new year, catalyzing growth by removing what doesn't align. I'm definitely convinced it will be a great meeting. I am myself eager to join. We'll see. So let's basically meet on the 30th of December. Thank you, Jacob, for this wonderful conversation. And I hope we'll be able to repeat it in some time in the future.
Awesome. Thanks a lot for your time. It was it was a fun conversation. I'd love to uh, keep talking about these things. These are huge issues and I like to share my thoughts, but I'd also love to hear any criticisms, of course, right? So feel free to reach out to me, any feedback that you might have. And yes, of course, I look forward to seeing you at my next salon. And I'm doing them on pretty much on a monthly basis. So if you're interested in these topics, love to see you there joining the discussion and, uh, you know, catalyzing growth in ourselves and in other people as we discuss these things, find error, improve, and depart from point of imperfection to just uh, improve, progress, and grow and find meaning and happiness in that path. Thanks again. Thank you again, too. And thank you to all of those who were listening. I hope you did have a great time and let's hear each other maybe on the next podcast. Thank you again, you'll bye.